Thank you for choosing the Abide College Ministry Podcast. If this is your first time listening, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message inspires and challenges you. Now here's a message from one of our leaders, Hunter Story. I'm so excited uh, just about tonight and just about um, just what I think God has in store for tonight, some things that the Lord uh, has been teaching me um, over the last couple of days and especially the last couple of weeks as we've been journeying through this idea of rivals. And so uh, just to kind of fill you in or to recap from last week, this idea uh, rivals is about the fact that there's so many things in our life that we allow to take God's place or Jesus's place as number one in our life. There's things that enter the scene for us that, that dominate our mind or that, that kind of fill our heart or fill our, fill our lives. And what happens is those things start to move up the ladder and they take the place that God should have as number one in our life. All, all of us have rivals. Every one of us have something that, that we're dealing with or that we're going through, that we're experiencing that in some time or another will take uh, Jesus' place as number one in our life, things that we allow to tell the story, things that we allow to kind of call the shots for our story. And the truth is that we learned last week that the greatest rival that I think there is is the rival of self. The rival of self is the rival of really of me and you, and it's this idea, the definition of a rival is something, someone or something that's seeking to take superiority or to have an equal platform with one another. And so it's this idea that the rival of self is this idea that we, because we love ourselves, because we get consumed with ourselves, we get consumed with our desires, because of, because of that, there's a rivalry that we create with God. We saw this in Genesis 3. We'll be back there later uh, tonight where in Ad- the story of Adam and Eve, the enemy tempts Adam and Eve, and the way he tempts him is not by just telling them to eat this fruit or not by just tempting them to do a bad thing. His temptation towards Adam and Eve is if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Literally the definition of a rival, to be like him. And what we see Adam and Eve do is they take a part of that fruit, they, the first sin is brought into the world, and what happens is a rivalry is created between humanity and God that lasts forever, one that we're even living in now. And all that stems from the rival of self, this desire that Adam and Eve had for the world to revolve around them, for everything to, to be about them, for them to be the ones that get to tell the story of the world. And what we see happens uh, is, is pretty pretty costly to Adam and Eve, and we'll look at that story in just a second. One thing we mentioned last week that's important is that the rival of self creates every other rival. So no matter what your rival is, if it's the rival of anxiety, the rival of depression, the rival of sin, the rival of some addiction or some habit, or the rival of complacency or success, whatever your rival is, that rival stems from the rival of you. The fact that we have desires that aren't of God, that we have desires that are sinful, And then when those desires take place in our life, those lead us into places that God never intended for us to go. But all of those things, everything that comes into our life to take God's place as number one comes from the fact that we want to take God's place as number one. We love to be in control. We love to write the script. We want, it, we want that so badly. And in fact, it's almost addicting how much we want to be number one, how much we want to be honored, how much we want to be lifted up, how much we want people to recognize us. But what we see when we do that, we create this rivalry between God to where we don't succeed. And that's what we talked about last week, and that's the idea we're going to get into uh, this week. Last week, we read from a passage in James chapter 1, and we're going to be back there again tonight to kind of finish off those couple of verses that we read last week. And in James chapter 1, he's talking about this very idea that we have our own selfish desires that kind of lead us away from the path that God intended us to be on. And what uh, James says in chapter 1, I think, is so so special. He says this, listen to the, listen to the progression that's kind, of, that's kind of taking place here. He says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So what gets us isn't God. What traps us isn't God. What gets us is us. What gets us is the fact that we have desires that are selfish. We have desires of the flesh. We have desires that belong to us, and those desires are what kind of lead us away. These are the desires that entice us, and this is what he says about our desire. Notice where, how this progression goes. It says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Every single one of our sins is rooted in the fact that we have selfish desires. Our sin problem starts with us. Every sin in the world that you could look at starts with this fact that we love ourselves. And at some point, if I could even go as far as to say that we get obsessed with ourselves, for every single sin in the world is about the fact that we want glory or we want honor or we want to be number one. But that comes from this desire. So we have this initial desire to love ourselves. Then after that's kind of conceived, it brings forth sin. And this is, what, this is what James says I think is so unique. So after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So you kind of have this progression that takes place here where you have this selfish desire, desire of the self. That desire of the self moves in to this, to this sin. And then when that sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So this, this progression takes place where it goes... Cert- First, the problem starts with us. The rivalry starts with ourself. Then that rivalry moves into a sin thing where we are doing something that is against God, that is something that God is not honored by or doesn't glory in. And then when that has fully grown, it leads to death. And the rival we're talking about tonight is the rival of death because it is certainly a rival that I think is worth spending time talking about tonight. And that rival is one that we're all very familiar with whether that's physically, whether that's spiritually. We'll talk about both of those ideas tonight, but there is a rival called death that, that starts from a rival called self. And when that rival of self leads to sin, that sin leads to death, and death is a rival that every single one of us have to deal with. It's this idea that we love ourselves, and when we love ourselves, we sin, and when we sin, there has to be a penalty there. When we sin, we are literally doing something against God. We are, we are sinning against a, a holy and a righteous God, and what that means is for us to for the rivalry to be over between us and God, there has to be some kind of payment, and the only payment for that is actually death. And so we're going to talk about how this unfolds in a minute. It's this idea this Paul talks about in Romans 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What is Paul saying? That if, we, if, we have the, if the rival of self exists, then it's always going to lead to death. When we set our mind on things of the flesh, we are setting our mind on death. But when we set our mind on things of the spirit, it leads to life and it leads to peace. The enemy knows this well, and his trick with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 was that you won't die, but the whole time he tempts us, knowing that our desire of sin leads to death. What does Jesus say in John 10? He says the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's exactly what he does, and we see that's the very thing that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And if you want to look at that story, if you just want to listen to it, that's fine, but kind of here's the idea that, uh, that, is, that is talked about in Genesis 3. Many of you may know this story, but the enemy is tempting Adam and Eve, and when he tempts Adam and Eve, he tempts them that if they eat this fruit, that they'll be like God, and so that's desirable for them. They almost crave that, so they lean into that, and they take that, and then what happens is pretty significant. God finds out, and what happens is Adam and Eve, they're, they're naked, and they're ashamed of, of that, and, and God knows this the whole time, and so he walks on this scene, and he has this conversation. He starts asking them why they're being weird, and uh, they kind of are beating around the bush, but then they kind of get into it. And so God starts to deal with them. And God starts to, to really, starts to discipline them. And then he says, 
this is what the Bible says in Genesis 3, uh, 21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. It's so unique that even in their sin, even in this disciplined moment, God shows redemption. He shows that he still cares about them. It says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Pay, I'm going to read this verse again and pay attention to what it says. It says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So why is, why is death a thing? Why is that even a thing? It starts, it starts here in the garden. It starts in Genesis 3, and what happens is God has to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, and when he does that, he knows that death is, is coming for them. There'll be this, this gradual process where they will die. Why does that happen? He sits right here so that they would not eat from the tree of life and live forever. Because when they ate from the tree of life, they were sinning. So why would God not want them to live forever? Because he knew that if they lived forever, that they would live forever in sin. So he has to kick them out of the garden. I don't want to make a stretch out of anything, but is it even possible that God knows so much that even in, in death, there'd be opportunity for redemption? And we'll talk about that story. We'll kind of get into that in a little bit. But it's this idea that sin or sin starts with self, and then that sin leads to death, and there has to be a payment for our sin. Our sin against the holy God, our sin against the righteous God, it, it means we owe God something. And so no matter where you're at on your faith journey, no matter what you think about sin, there's things that the Bible lists as, are, are sins against God, and those things require some sort of payment. And the payment for that is death. And that's where death enters this scene as a rival, something that begins to take the place of God because we have to owe God something. Our selfish decisions can be deadly. They were in the garden and they were now. So we can talk about different types of death. There's physical death, which many of us have probably experienced with loved ones or, or people that we know where, where it limits life and it cuts life short, we feel like. And it honestly brings fear and it brings darkness and it brings despair into our life when, when one of our loved ones passes away. There's that gradual death that where sin just slowly kills us. That's why, that's why we physically die because sin is because sin is in the world, but then there's also this idea of spiritual death. The fact that when we are in sin, that we are spiritually dead. And, th and that's, that's, just, that's the truth. I don't know where you're, where you're at on your faith journey again, but what I hope you understand tonight is what the Bible makes pretty clear is that when we're living in sin, we're spiritually dead. And there's only one way we become spiritually alive, and that's through Jesus. We'll get into that in just a second, but but just think of this story where God knows everything from the beginning of time. He knows what Adam and Eve are going to do. He knows everything that we are going to do, but his plan is so much bigger. If you look with me in, in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a really, uh, really unique passage that uh, is one of my favorites in all scripture. I know I'm flipping around everywhere, but I would rather you hear from this than from me anyways, and so I want us to get around this idea in Ephesians chapter 2. So we know that this is, this is basically it. I can't really elaborate on this much more than the fact that if if we are in sin, we're spiritually dead. And if we're dead, we can't do anything. If we're dead, we can't do anything on our own. And something has to happen so that we become spiritually alive. Something has to take place. And this is what happens. Just think that, that God had a plan this whole time. And this is what he says. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. Those are maybe some harsh words, but that's just the truth of Scripture, that we are disobedient, that we go against God, 
And then this is what he says, and all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the craving of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's the exact idea we talked about last week, that we have this tendency to do the opposite thing, that we have this tendency to do our own thing, that craving of the flesh that the Bible talks about, following desires of the flesh. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us. And isn't that the story of the gospel? That when we were spiritually dead, there's those words, but God, that changed absolutely everything for our story. And I think that's so important. And what it says here, it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace you have been saved, and God has raised you up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, here's the story. You are spiritually dead, and there's an opportunity to be spiritually alive based simply on what Christ has done for you on the cross. It's something you couldn't do, your parents couldn't do for you, your family couldn't do it for you, your school can't do it for you, your job can't do it for you. You can't do it on your own, but there's an opportunity to move from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from leaving a life of sin and entering a life of grace, and that is strictly built on what Jesus has done for you because he was kind to you, because he cared for you, because he had great love for you, because he was rich in mercy towards you as an individual and he saw your story and he saw your sin and he saw your mistakes he saw the rivalry between you and God and he said that doesn't matter and just to think that there was a the story of God goes from garden to garden that there was a moment in a garden where God saw what would happen to the world because of sin and he knew that death awaited the people he created but then there was another moment in a garden when Jesus himself looked death straight in the face and said I'm going to take this because of the love that I have for my people because they can't do it on their own I'll do it for him and he went to the cross and he died on the cross and he humbled himself we talked about that whole idea last week that Jesus humbled himself on the cross for us to die for our sin to pay a debt that we could not pay because our sin was too much for us our sin was too heavy for us it was it's too much of a debt for us to pay. So what does Jesus do? He looks death in the face in the garden. He says, I know what's about to happen to me. I know I'm going to be beat. I know I'm going to be crucified. But that's the story of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for us. And he has now taken those who are dead and he's made those alive. And that's where the rivalry ends. It ends with the cross because we're, Jesus is the only one who can reverse sin and he can reverse death. And he does it through a cross. That's our story. That's it. That Jesus, because of the kindness and the love that he has for us, has defeated death because he's paid the price that me and you cannot pay on our own. I don't know if you've seen the logo. I don't think we have it tonight, but it's basically this graphic that we've had. That there's a cross, there's a greater than sign, then it says rivals. So if you just want to make a note of that or mentally think that, draw a cross, greater than sign, and put rivals. And why do we... Put that Because what did we learn last week? How is the rival of self defeated? The rival of self is defeated by Jesus humbling himself on the cross and then being exalted for the glory of God. How is the rival of death defeated? Through the death of Jesus. I love when scripture just speaks so loudly. And I, I found this verse the other day and it really just, it grabbed a hold of my heart. It's in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Just think about this, since this is speaking of Jesus, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And the story of Jesus is that he put death to death by the way of death. And the cross is the thing that defeats every single 
rival. The cross is what defeats every rival because when every rival seeks to take for itself, the cross is the example that God gives up himself. When all of the things that are competing for your time, competing for your attention, and competing for your worship, when all those things, what they're trying to do is they're trying to take away from you, the cross shows us that God is trying to give to you, and he's trying to be generous to you generous to you in the way that he shows you love, in the way that he's shown you kindness. And death thought it had won, but then there's those words, but God and only God can put an end to death through death. In Revelation 1.8, I know I'm all over the place, but this is what Revelation 1.8 says. This is what Jesus speaks. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And there's a rival called death that comes into our story because of our sin. And you know what Jesus says about that rival? That he holds the keys to it and that he controls it. He dictates what happens in all of the world. And Jesus is holding the keys. And for those who put their faith in him, we get to share in the same story that we were dead and we were alive. The story of the gospel is not that we were bad and now we were good or that we made mistakes and now we don't make those mistakes anymore. The story of the gospel is Jesus takes people who are dead and can't do anything on their own and he makes them come to life. And that's what we're invited into by trusting in what Jesus has done for us on the cross when we couldn't do it ourselves. When I didn't have the power in myself to save myself, Jesus looked at me in my story and showed kindness on me by going to the cross, and he's defeated every single rival, the rival of me, the rival of myself, and he's defeated the rival of death to where I'm not living spiritually dead anymore, but I'm spiritually alive, and my eyes are open, and I see purpose, and I see passion, and I see a cross that says I'm loved, and I see a cross that says I matter, and I see a cross that says there's eternal life waiting for me, and we can begin to live in that truth that to live is Christ, but to die is gain because there's a cross that gets me into heaven. There's a cross that pays my debt. There's a cross that pays for my sin, and I can't do it on my own, and when I couldn't do it on my own, Jesus said, I will do it for you, and he carried the weight for us by the way of death. He is defeated defeated death forever. And there's an invitation for you and for me to live in that. I want to invite the band to, to come back up and start playing. We're going to kind of cut things off because this is, this is the bottom, bottom line, that if we're in sin, we're dead. That's just the truth. And that's, that's honestly, I hate that that's even hard to say because it shouldn't be hard to say, but that's just the truth, that we are spiritually dead in our sin. And there's a cross that brings us to life. Jesus is the only one who can reverse that. And so I don't know where you're at on your faith journey, but I pray tonight that you would look to Jesus to see that there is a cross that's so much bigger than your mistakes, so much bigger than the things you've done wrong, so much bigger than your failures, so much bigger than your reputation. There's a cross that shows Jesus and God's kindness towards you says you are loved, that you are valuable, and that you have no reason to fear because death isn't, it might be a physical thing, but it doesn't have to be a spiritual thing. Dead people don't do anything, but alive people do. Dead people can't do anything, but alive people do. So what's, what's the point, what's the point in, in sharing that? That's a simple statement. We, we get that. Yeah, of course, Hunter, dead people can't do anything. I know that. So are you spiritually dead? you can come to life by the way of a cross by you trusting in a cross it says Jesus paid the way for you and it's not about changing your behavior 
or changing your decisions, that stuff can come, but it's about being awakened and the breath of God entering your story so that you move from death and you walk in life. And when that happens, what people say about you doesn't really matter as much. What happens to you doesn't really matter as much. How people criticize you and critique you doesn't really matter as much. If you make $100,000 a year or not, doesn't really matter as much. If you make it in your company or in your organization, if you climb the ladder of success, it doesn't really matter or not because you were dead and now you're alive. That's the story of the gospel right, right there. That we can put our faith in a God who loves us by showing kindness to us in Jesus by way of the cross and that he put death to death through his death. There's one more story that I'm thinking of that many of you may, may know. It's in Ezekiel 37. And I just see this picture as I look even at us. This is Ezekiel talking. He says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. So just catch this image. Ezekiel's in this valley, and the valley's full of these bones. And it says, He led me back and forth among them. So Ezekiel's walking through these bones, and he saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, and they were dry. And this is what he says, Son of man, can these bones live? God, that's a weird question. And he says, Sovereign Lord, you know, you, you know if they can live, you, you know if these bones can live or not. And this is what he says, prophesy to the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. And I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and he could literally hear the bones start to come together and attach to, attach to one another. Bone to bone, it says, I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life, and he stood up on their feet, a vast army. I just look at this room full of college students. That if we could get this picture, that that was us, that we were those bones that couldn't do anything for ourselves. We were those bones that couldn't help ourselves. And God in his kindness, he breathes into the valley of dry bones. And those bones, they start to come together and they start to click together. But that's not enough. Then he puts his breath in them. And what happens is those bones come to life. And what was dead turns into an alive army. And if we could just get the picture for a moment that that could be us, that we could move from death to life. And there could be an army of young people in this room right now that say, that is my story, that I was dead, but now I'm alive and nothing else matters. Nothing's going to take first place. Nothing's going to rival God because I have a God. And in his kindness and in his love, he says, you were dead and I'm going to make you alive. And I'm going to make you into an army that has passion and purpose for the world. That's what we're invited into. That's as young people that maybe we're here not just to have a job or just to go to school, but that we can show people the way from death to life comes through a cross, and that cross had Jesus, the Savior of the world. And when Jesus died for us on that cross, death is taken away. Death doesn't have to be an option in our story because we have a God who is so powerful, who is so good, and because of his grace, when we couldn't help ourselves, he moved us from death to life. That's what you're invited into. Will you bow your heads? 
Jesus, thank you so much that when I couldn't help myself, you did it for me. And I can be alive. And I just pray over these next couple moments that we wouldn't sing this song like we're dead because we're not, that we would sing this song like we're the alive children of God who received grace like we could never find anywhere else. I pray that we would grab a hold of the story of the gospel, that we go from death to life by putting our faith in Jesus who did something that we couldn't do. Oh, Jesus, please open our eyes. Don't let us leave without coming spiritually alive in you. God, please open our eyes. Please don't let us miss this moment where you destroyed death through the death of your son, Jesus. Don't let us miss that, that everything in life comes down to this, this opportunity, this invitation to say yes to what Jesus has done and move from death to life. Death is no more death. You do not write the story. You do not win. And even when death thought it won, it didn't. And so we celebrate you because of that, God, because of your power, because you write the stories of the world and you wrote the story of Jesus that, yes, he died, but three days later, he rose again. You robbed the grave, just like we sang about. So we worship you for that. We love you for that, Jesus. Turn us into an army and let our story be. We were dead, but now we're alive. We love you. In your holy and precious name we pray.